You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, I'm in Boise, Idaho, and Crystal is at the KGVM headquarters speaking via Zoom with Ellen Baumler about her new book, and Ellen is in Helena. Her new book is called The Life of the Afterlife in the Big Sky State, A History of Montana's Cemeteries. We're excited to talk with Ellen, but Crystal, let's check in with you. How was your week? It was great. It was a really good week here in Bozeman, Montana. We celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day on October 11th, and we had a wonderful display on one of our local hilltops. We had seven teepees installed um, on the hilltop, um, and they were put up by the Pretty Shield Foundation and hosted by Mountain Time Arts here in Bozeman. And the seven teepees were up there, and at night they were all lit with different colors. It was gorgeous, yeah. just gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, I saw the photos, but I was it was cold, and I wasn't as brave as you to go out there. Oh, Nancy. Did you go? I'm sure it was so moving. It was was so beautiful. I I had a lot going on with the store, but you you were there, huh? You did. Yeah. So we went up the first night that they were, um, that they were put up. We went up and, and looked at them and enjoyed the, enjoyed them lighting them because they would light them at dusk every night. And so, uh, we'd enjoy them before they were lit. And then we enjoyed them after they were lit that first night. And then we went up on Indigenous Peoples Day as well, which is October 11th. And we um, were there for the ceremony, the Indigenous Peoples Day ceremony, where a variety of people spoke about the importance of Indigenous Peoples Day. So it was a great gathering. There was hundreds of people there. And after the ceremony, everybody did a round dance around the teepees. And there were so many people, it was really hard to do a round dance, but <laughs> but we managed. <laughs> so awesome. yeah, so it was great. And then um, later that week, there was another event that Nancy, you and I went to, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about that event. Yeah, we had heard there was an invitation to the opening of the, um, I think it's the American Indian Hall or Center at Montana State University. And it's, it's one of the most amazing structures. I think it has sort of an, an eagle feather or wing is sort of the shape of that is the roof. So we had this big event around the opening where there was a drum circle, a huge procession in of so many uh, wonderful indigenous students and members of the community who were dressed in all kinds of amazing regalia um, processed. in. And then there was quite 
an array of speakers from from John Tester to we didn't have Deb Holland. I think um, we had though her second in command, mm-hmm. and um, who's also the first Native gentleman who's the head of the Borgent Regents for Montana. But um, Walter Fleming, uh, Wadad Cruzado, and um, we we just heard this whole amazing long decades long history of the effort to get this this building, this center for Native students onto the campus. And and it was stunning. It was a really moving event, wasn't it? It was a gorgeous it day. Was. It was a gorgeous day. And so many people, again, came out for that event. Hundreds of people were there. Mm-hmm. And it was outside and just a, a really moving, uh, you know, a lot of students spoke about the need for the center. Really um, eloquent. And this, and this building. Yeah. And it's just a beautiful building. And it's LEED certified. It's like platinum LEED certified it's, or something. The, the most certified platinum whatever you can get anywhere in the state of Montana. I think we have yeah. the best one right now on campus, which yeah. is which is fitting. It's just it so fitting. Yeah, yeah. It is. Did perfect. you get to go inside? Because there's apparently a lot of artwork. We saw a dedication outside of several blankets that were amazing. And mm-hmm. I was dying to go in and, and see what was going on, but I had to move my son out of my house and into his condo. And oh. unfortunately, that took priority. So <laughs> tell me a little bit about the inside. Yeah. So, um, so we did, I didn't, I didn't go inside that day. Um, there were so many people there. Like I said, there was just hundreds and hundreds of people. And so, um, so I, I chose not to go in that day, but I'm hoping to go in in the next week or so and just go wander around a little bit. Let's, let's make a date yeah. and, okay. and do it together. Yeah. That sounds and good. I, it, was, it was such a wonderful thing to have both those things happen mm-hmm. right on and around indigenous people's day. And, and just to throw my hat in the ring, I, I had a boot sale at the shop because I said Columbus never actually set foot in North America. So in in honor of that factoid that people should know, um, we're having a boot sale, a a falls shoe sale for a celebration of Indigenous Peoples Day. So um, we were busy at the store, did a little more remodeling and things like that. It was a little crazy. But um, but it's all good. And um, we're so excited to to get back around here and pay some more attention to our guest, yes. Ellen Wommler. And uh, before we do that, we want to just mention that we do um, have a sponsor for this episode. Again, we're so grateful that we're getting into the point, Crystal, where we're having sponsors now. Yes. So our sponsor for this episode, again, is the Western Heritage Center. Yes. And we'll talk a little bit more about them um, a little later in the podcast. But Ellen, we are so glad to have you with us here today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Ellen. We we want to start off by telling our listeners a little bit about you. Um, we always do this because um, we presume they don't know you, so we have to almost talk about you in the third person for a couple minutes here. <laughs> Ellen Baumler was the interpretive historian at the Montana Historical Society from 1992 until her retirement in 2018. Hard to believe you're retired, Ellen. I think you're still working super hard. Just retirement from one thing so you can start another. <laughs> She's the author or editor of numerous books, including Girl from the Gulches, The Story of Mary Ronan and Dark Spaces, Montana's Historic Penitentiary at Deer Lodge. Baumler won the Montana Governor's Award for the Humanities and the Peter Yagen Jr. Award from the Montana Association of Museums, for excellence and distinction in fostering the advancement of Montana's museums. 
We have had the pleasure to work with Ellen on numerous occasions. Extreme History has been uh, grateful to have a wonderful relationship with Ellen Baumler. And we um, really appreciate and love the way she brings history to the public in such engaging ways. So no Ellen, pressure there. Huh? No pressure there. <laughs> So, yeah, we set the bar high. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Ellen, we love to start out by asking our guests how they made their way into the field of history. And I don't think I've ever asked you this question before. <laughs> so how did you find your, your yourself here um, doing the work that you do, uh, bringing history to the public, writing books, doing lectures, doing presentations, doing walking tours? <laughs> well, it's kind of, I guess it's a long journey. You know, I was probably uh, beyond middle age when I came to Montana. But, you know, I started out as a theater major in college. Oh my uh, and then I had this inspiring professor that uh, really, really uh, turned me on to Anglo-Saxon and Latin and medieval stuff. And so I sort of specialized in that at the master's level and got a, a master's degree in, um, in Middle English and Anglo-Saxon. Oh, uh, like no goodness. jobs there, you know, but yeah. I, uh, wow. Wow. I went on to do a PhD in that, you know, in that area, but I added uh, history and, and classics. And so, um, there, you know, really weren't any jobs, but I loved what I did and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I spent 10 years after that teaching GED in inner city Tucson, um, headed a learning center, and then we moved to Montana I have to confess, I didn't even know where Montana was on the map. Really. Okay, that was me too before we, <laughs> you know. Yep, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, so we came. We came in 1988, and um, I I spent uh, about three years working on my historic house, and really kind of got into the history area, local history there. That's um, a and great then I was, what's yeah. that? I said, that's a great way in when you're working. Yeah, in historic exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I got real interested in that. And then I was fortunate to um, be hired by the Montana Historical Society, really to create the new program of National Register Signs. And so wow. over the course of 26 years, I authored more than a thousand signs over all, you know, all over Montana, all different topics, places and things. And really probably no more trivia than anybody does. But, um, and, you know, then I also taught for about 15 years, I taught Montana history at the um, Helena campus for U of M. And I, you know, I just sort of branched out into a lot of different areas in Montana history. Um, I authored National Register nominations. I, you know, wrote columns in that uh, local newspaper. I, wrote and recorded daily history minutes for radio for about five years. And, um, you know, all of those things, I guess, are pieces of my journey. Wow. That's quite a, it's a, a long journey. journey. No, but it's so, I mean, I think for the life of women in general, mm-hmm. like that's such an interesting, but not unusual, though circuitous yeah. way. I mean, I feel like I've changed courses many times in my yeah. life and those yeah. things all seem to they come full circle, don't they? Yeah, they do. And you know, you never, never, never know where your path is going to lead you. What you do in college really is probably never what you'll do. And you just really, you have to take those those chances and take I, those branches. I, and 
I would pay to hear you say something in Middle English, though. I mean, I'm I'm so shocked you couldn't find a job in that. No, sure, I'm heavy on heaven, righteous word. May actor that's macta on his word, yeah, thank. That's Whoa. the only thing I remember. <laughs> you sound like a Viking. <laughs> Holy moly, what was that? <laughs> that was a that was a prayer. Wow, <laughs> An early Christian prayer. Yeah. So. Wow, that was amazing. That's the oh. only thing I remember. <laughs> well, good for you. I, I was thinking of all the signs you've authored, and uh, Crystal, do you remember doing the sign for Fort Ellis? How we we just oh, yeah. struggled with how much we did research and how much we wanted to put into the signs and how, how, little... how yeah. <laughs> right, Ellen? Concise writing yeah. is really the key. <laughs> yeah, I know. And we, we were trying to figure out ways with, with graphics and words to yeah. convey as much without being overwhelming. It's hard. And, yeah. yeah. It's hard. Yeah. That's quite a talent. But that's yeah. a, an aspect of doing public history and public art. It is. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, and then we worked on that sign for months. We worked on it for months and months <laughs> yeah. and months. And then the first t- day I went out to see the sign, there's a typo in it. <laughs> oh, well, I've had that experience too myself. We, it, we've all done it. You know, we have all done it. And everyone looked at it. But then yeah. also we did a timeline across the bottom and it was two plaques and they put the timeline in reverse order so that so that the second half came first and then you jumped back to 10,000 years. <laughs> so we were like, oh, well, you know, yeah. it's all good. It's they all fi- good they, they were able to fix that part, though. They fixed that. <laughs> they really? Okay, yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can never I, get mine fixed. I always had to just, I'm do it over again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the typo's still there, but we're like, oh, well. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, okay. So all good. So um, we, we know how we, we feel your pain on the writing signs. I mean, that yeah. we wrote one and it was <laughs> laborious. Yeah. 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 Did you enjoy teaching, Ellen? When, teaching I did. I love teaching and I, and I really, I tried to, um, when I taught Montana history, I it was place-based, you know, so it was really sort of what I knew. But uh, my students absolutely loved my class, and I still oh, have, I best. still have students that come back and say that was the best class I ever took. So you know, it makes you feel really good. I'm glad I did it. Yeah, stuff yeah. that sticks with people. Well, yeah. you're a storyteller, and I think when you, <laughs> when you're telling them, what what's the phrase we learned in our last podcast, Crystal? Um, and, and, Evidence, evidence-based evidence storytelling. storytelling. Yeah. Oh, history, yeah. archaeology. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to do is evidence-based storytelling. So it cool. has that creative, lovely impact, but it's based in evidence. We're not. I like that phrase. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's yeah. good. And I, I think you're wonderful at that. So, um, so Ellen, your book, um, "Life: The Life of the Afterlife in the Big Sky State." It's um. It's in some ways a history of, of death and dying in Montana, and it includes so much information on burial customs, headstones and headstone symbolism, cemeteries, the, the structure and evolution of cemeteries, boot hills, cultural identity, and, and really in a way you're discussing the history of Montana sort of set within this larger history of the West through an analysis in some ways of cemeteries. So what prompted you to write this book? I know you've written many, but this I think is your most recent. So what prompted this one? 
Well, I guess I learned early on that cemeteries are part of the historian's primary toolbox, you know, um, along with uh, historic maps and census reports and directories and stuff like that. And so I kind of branched out into the study of minorities and cemetery research became especially important, you know, for that. So I... um, I then authored half a dozen National Register nominations, and some of those were cemeteries. And so what I learned from doing those cemetery nominations, you know, I, I, I just really kind of wanted to share that information. It's not information that was easily accessible. And, and so I, I, I just sort of got very interested in that. Yeah. You know, the... Um the one thing about um you know national register nominations and and a lot of work that oftentimes historians do it goes into file cabinets and is never seen again never sees the light yeah. of day and it's such That's interesting right. research and it's so important it is and mm-hmm. so uh, you know it's it's great ellen that you wrote that book because Otherwise, a lot of that stuff wouldn't be known. It would kind of still be in the file cabinet. So it's yep. great when historians and archaeologists kind of pull from their work that they've done during their career and write these books. I think that's so significant and important. Well, I, you know, I really feel like historians have an obligation to share those things. And, um, you know, that, that's probably the difference between difference between public historians and academic historians. You know, academic historians write papers that are sometimes really interesting, but the information gets buried. And so I sort of like to be a bridge between the two, I guess. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And in this case, too, you, you know, you're pulling from a whole bunch of different time periods, mm-hmm. parts of Montana, peoples involved, um, but by, by this whole theme of, of the afterlife and death, yeah. really bringing it together, it's a nice way to take all those things that you've learned through those nominations, but probably also through, um, uh, you know, additional research to pull it all together into this book, which which makes a really um, lovely read for people interested in the West. You know, thank you. Thank you. So, Ellen, people have been living in this region that we now call Montana for thousands of years. And therefore, of course, people have been dying in this area for thousands of years. So we've talked on our podcast before about um, some of these older archaeological sites like the Anzic site that dates way back to 12,500 years ago. Um, And this was a a burial that was accidentally uncovered near Wilson, Montana in the 1960s. And you start off your book by discussing some of these older archaeological sites, including the Anzic site. And since we've talked about that one a lot on this podcast, I wanted to skip right to another burial that you talk about in the book that is also a very ancient burial, and it's called the Split Rock Burial. So can you describe this site and its similarities to the Anzic site? Well, um, the Anzic site, of course, the child that was buried there was covered in ochre, and all of the items were also covered in ochre. And you don't find that in the split rock burial. But I think that the similarities are pretty interesting because they, they're separated by about t- 10,000 years, you know, a long separation. But here you have, again, a rock ledge burial like the Anzic site. And um, you have a a burial that is indicative of possible high status because not everybody was buried in those overhanging rocks. 
Um, and again, you know, it's thousands of years later, but here you have with the split rock burial, you have a cache of weapons. And within that cache of weapons, you have a mammal long bone that I think is maybe the key there because we also find that same kind of long bone in the Anzac site. And what archaeologists think that is, the theory is that those long bones were pressure flakers. And that pressure flaker is a key to uh, the manufacture of stone tools. It's what sharpens them. And uh, you find that in the Anzac burial, which that, that child was buried, buried with an entire toolkit uh, with, with um, stone tools that are in various stages of manufacture so that this little child will have the wherewithal to survive in the afterlife. And with the split rock burial, you have uh, a person who probably already has that knowledge, uh, but there is a whole cache of weapons of stone uh, points and a pressure flaker there so that the person can sharpen those weapons if they, you know, need to. So I think the idea is the same, you know, use in the afterlife. Uh, there you have this cool transition, though, between, you know, we have atlatl weapons in uh, the Anzac burial, but in the other split rock burial, 10,000 years later, you have this... Uh, a bow and arrow type of, of point. So it shows that transition. But even though there is this major transition, um, the method of production is still the same. Mm. Well, I think it's pretty interesting that those methods carry over for thousands and thousands of years. Right. right. But I mean, the, the uh, split rock barrel is amazing too, because it, it is amazing to have that cache of those Avonlea yep. points, which are... right made so beautifully and so thin. So, so Clovis, you have these amazing, gorgeous, yep. fluid, large projectiles. And then with Split Rock, you have sort of this other part because we get other periods in Montana where um, the stone points that are being made to, to bring down animals are not as beautifully made or as well-crafted, mm -hmm. but in this Avonlea period for that burial. And then to have them all cached with an individual. Yeah. Yeah. And then you talk about some other things that are included, too, that that came from quite far away. Right. You know, um, the other thing that I think is interesting, that it shows the development over thousands of years of this really impressive travel network or trade network, because you have um, drilled uh, beads and shells and the shells. Some of the shells come from saltwater species. And one of them uh, is an olivella species bead that comes from uh, salt water from the Atlantic or the Pacific or the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, this trade network is, is pretty incredible. Um, whether the person traveled there himself or, you know, it was a, a network of trade, you know, we can't really speculate line. about yeah. that, yeah. you know, but, but over time, this network has developed, which is pretty cool. Okay. Wow. So um, tell me again that the age of the split rock burial. So it's um, 10,000 years after the 12,500. Okay. So it's 10,000 years later. Okay. Um, I'd have to look up the... Yeah. It's about 1,000 years old. About 1,000 years old. old. That's yeah. what I would guess. I don't know the exact date, Crystal, yeah. but I think yeah. that's about yeah. right. If you okay. want to, you'll probably have to edit this, huh? 
No, I think that's okay. We okay. I'm looking right now, but but um, <laughs> I don't know how if I can get to it fast enough. But you know, Ellen. But in the, other- the meantime, I want to ask about yeah. you know a very other, a very different type of burial that you mentioned after that, the the Hagen site, Mm -hmm. which is very close to Glendive, Montana, um, found in 1936, ages ago, and first explored sort of during that that National Youth Administration and and Works Project Administration early archaeological investigations. And it has a burial mound and it also has the remains of what looks like a a, a circular structure that Mm -hmm. would have been lived in and this Mm -hmm. is fairly unusual for what we find in montana um in terms of remains left behind so talk a little bit about what we know from from um about the afterlife at the hagen site yeah so it's a really interesting uh structurally perfectly engineered circle and um, around this circle, there's a gathering of skulls and mandibles, which to me is, is just fascinating. And it, you know, represents many different individuals. Um, it's very similar to um, mortuary circles that you find in the Mandan, Hidatsa, and uh, other Northern, Pla- Northern Plains tribes. So there is that, maybe that connection um, between other Northern tribes and the group of people that settled uh, at the Hagen site. And, you know, I, th- I think it, it's interesting because the gathering of skulls seems to be a common thread uh, that uh, I, d- I just think this is very fascinating that uh, you find the same gathering of skulls in the place of the skulls on the rim rocks overlooking the uh, Metro Park in Billings. They're on a ledge, you know, they're not in a circle. But it's still, it's that gathering of, of skulls and, and placing them together. Um, historically, skulls were often collected and placed in other interments in trees or on scaffolds. And one photo in the book that, that I really like a lot um, is a late 19th to 20th century photograph of a... Um, an earth burial with a wooden fence around it. Mm. And on top of the fence is a box interment that's covered with a blanket. And on one of the posts is a skull. And that's very late, you know, so that, that, you know, that custom, I mean, it, it, it really follows through a lot of time periods. And then if you think about the catacombs, in Rome and in Paris, you have these artistic arrangements of skulls. So, you know, there's something about that that just carries through many different cultures. Mm. I mean, that made me think of going to um, uh, um, Europe and visiting ossuaries and seeing yeah. all those different arrangements of skulls in those ossuaries. Exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. It's the same type of thing. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not an archaeologist, but but I can see those patterns. And it, it's not, uh, it's not just one culture, you know, that has, um, has had that fascination, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so fascinating to me, too, because we, we think of the Mandan and Hadatsa as being, you know, um, Northern Plains tribes, but they're much more sedentary. They're in a village, they're growing food, and we think of exactly. black feet. And, and so right. the mortuary customs 
you know, are different, not only because of their culture, but also the mm-hmm. life way. Are they moving yeah. around frequently? Yeah. Yeah. Where are your territories? Where are the places within those territories where they might leave a body? And, and to construct, because this mound, the ones you find in Mandan villages, as well as the one at the Hagen site, they're, they're constructed to be quite high, as you mm-hmm. said, perfectly round, very yeah. large. And there's there's actually movement of gravel and earth and then bones and ash and levels of, mm-hmm. you know, remains in. And mm-hmm. so it is very much this, I feel like marking the landscape, a place mm-hmm. you come back to, and a way of, as you've mentioned in the book, you know, it's the secondary treatment after a body has decayed and defleshed, exactly. what you're right. supposed to do and movement and mm-hmm. maybe make a bundle. And we see that again, as you said, worldwide this idea of right. bundling remains and moving them places yeah. yeah so it's it's so interesting though that it's you know you we see so many different customs um even on the northern plains of montana and well I mean, you know the other thing about the hagen site that's really interesting is that it seems to be a people in transition yeah you know and um you see evidence there is no farming there but you do find agricultural implements and then you also find hundreds of the remains of hundreds of bison. And so these people seem to be in transition from agriculture to hunting bison, which to me is really interesting. You know what else you find hundreds of there, Ellen? Hmm. Fish bones. Um, oh. They're catching fish like crazy. And I um, I can't wait for someone to go back and do more research there. It's just a really cool site we yeah. I think we still know very little about. I totally agree. Both Les you. Davis and the earlier WPA. Yeah recovered tons of um, fish bones as well as bison. So very different oh, economy than what you're seeing. And all they found was a little bit of corn pollen in one of the pits. But yeah, like huh? you said, some bison hose, but no other agricultural, um, really substantial evidence for actually yeah. engaging in agriculture. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that's a tangent. I'm going to go back to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to let Crystal go to the next question. Yeah. Go on and on about. I, the I know. I was just going to say, you and Nancy could probably talk about the Hagen site all day. So I'm going to move us forward. <laughs> so let's talk more about Europeans and Americans um, starting to settle the West, coming to this area as missionaries, traders, miners, homesteaders. So what did these early bearing practices of these folks um, look like? Well, you know, the earliest fur trading posts, that the ones that came right after Lewis and Clark, you know, they probably didn't have burial grounds. I mean, we know that people died when they were associated with these remote places, but we don't necessarily know where their graves were. And I mean, I have the impression that they probably were buried where they fell, okay. you know, in whatever way, and and very unceremoniously. And and unceremonious burials, you know, are are pretty common, not just in that context, but homesteaders and you know, people just had to move on, and they did move on. Um, but I think that with the coming of the Catholic missions, that probably probably is the first established uh, cemeteries. Um, I, I know that, that Fort Benton had a post cemetery that was obliterated because of urban encroachment. Uh, we have no idea where it was mm. or who might have been buried there. But according to reports, um, Native Americans were buried there if they wanted earth burial. And sometimes the, the, the post would furnish a uh, a wooden coffin. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. So sometimes those wooden coffins would be put in the trees or whatever. So, you know, those, those were burial customs that kind of changed over time. Uh, the first Catholic cemetery that, that I was able to uh, find, I think, is the St. Ignatius Cemetery uh, that was founded in 1854. And that's really very early. We know that there was one at St. Mary's Mission, but that early site was obliterated by the changing uh, channel of the river. And that's original site has really never been found. Um, the second St. Mary's site, of course, has two cemeteries, which is really interesting also because there is a white cemetery with tombstones and fences and stuff. And then there is a Salish cemetery that the ground is, I mean, it's just almost polished flat. And there are hundreds of people buried there, but there are no marked graves. Mm. And they're very, very distinct, the two cemeteries, you know, but they are both associated with St. Mary's mission. So you have these different um, customs that sort of sometimes blended. Um, and, and it is kind of interesting to look at that. That's fascinating. I feel like the, the early period to me, that period of, of contact and transition yeah. with the Americans coming out is, um, is very complicated. And, you, and yeah, you see what people think about each other and what they think mm -hmm. about themselves and what resources and means they had or didn't yeah. you know, in, yeah. in the early time. Um, we're going to take a quick station break, Ellen, and then we'll, we'll move on with our questions. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We are speaking today with Ellen Baumler about her new book, The Life of the Afterlife in the Big Sky State. So Ellen, let's talk a little bit about the evolution of cemeteries themselves over time. So um, I know here in the United States and I know the way I grew up thinking about cemeteries, especially where I'm from on the East Coast, in the 1700s and early 1800s, they were much more associated directly with churches or chapels, and, and burial grounds were often placed right there next to the, the physical structure of the church or chapel itself, which might even be right in the middle of town. Um, but of course, that can only hold so many people. The town is growing around it. So starting around the 1830s, there was a movement towards more rural burial grounds. Um, these cemeteries, this land was selected and the areas were landscaped beautifully and people went and visited and used them as, as parks, as places almost to recreate and enjoy family time outside of the cities. Cause so can you just tell us a little bit about that transition and, and how that may be affected cemeterial structures out here in the West? So, of course, there were serious health reasons to relocate overcrowded cemeteries. Uh, but here in Montana, it really wasn't so much that burial grounds were overfull. Uh, really, it was more urban encroachment, as you mentioned, and organized cemeteries really became the mark of stability and permanence for uh, many communities. They were the last great necessity and reflected an educated community. And so a lot of communities wanted to have more beautiful cemeteries to show that they, you know, were cultured and educated. That's so and as, <laughs> the cemetery is sort of a sign of your community's, yeah. you know, establishment and, and, and cultural progression or whatever. Right, right. You know, and as urban areas grew, 
moving cemetery out, cemeteries out of town really became a trend here in the West. There were few towns that had dedicated spaces for parks or places to recreate, and cemeteries really then began to fill that need because they were places sort of out of town that were landscaped and they were pleasant to go to. And, uh, and you know, sometimes, though, it, it really wasn't a choice to move a cemetery out of town, like in Butte, for example. Um, urban burials there didn't always stay underground because of ground disturbance in the mining. Um, and so rural cemeteries there really were a necessity, but elsewhere it was really more of a place where the dead could take their rest and the living could take their leisure. And people began to take picnics, you know, to cemeteries and enjoy them as we enjoy parks. I think we're kind of coming back around to that a little bit, Ellen. Do you see that in when you know you've been doing research on cemeteries for many, many years and and I feel like there's just this resurgence of going back into the cemetery to enjoy the beauty of these places, the beauty of the headstones, the beauty of the trees and the flowers and the the landscape of of these rural cemeteries. Yeah, it's amazing how many people say to me, "Oh, I love cemeteries. I'd love to just take walks and, you know, so I do think people are enjoying those places, maybe more than they more than they ever have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I think that cemeteries are really a place of beauty. They're kind of an outdoor archives. We talk about them a mm-hmm. lot as outdoor archives, right. a place where you can go and relax, but also right. a place where you can go and really see your community and better understand your community and um, really understand your historic community. And that's, of course, why I love cemeteries, too, mm-hmm. because you can go into any town, you know, you can drive into any town, and you can drive to the cemetery and look around, and you can really see the history of that community reflected in the cemetery. Yeah. And yeah. that and that is really um, a way to better understand how people thought about other people in their communities in those early days. And yeah. so here in the West and in Montana, but in the West in general, um, there was a lot of diversity in the early West. Um, I'm talking kind of the 1860s through 1890s. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of diversity. There was a lot of different groups that were living together in these mining towns and agricultural towns. And so can you tell us how this, um, how these different um, ethnic groups and different cultural groups were coming together and how that is reflected in cemeteries and those historic parts of cemeteries. Yeah, I mean, not only did we have, you know, Euro-Americans and Native Americans, very different customs and backgrounds, but as we've talked about several times on this podcast with other folks, you know, you had African-Americans coming out here, people that were either fleeing slavery or or freed slaved or after the Civil War, and then we have a a whole Chinese community in several places came out for a gold rush or um, building, working on the railroads, but we had quite a lot of diversity. And I mean, looking at Butte too, all the people that came out for work there. So you see some of that, and it's interesting because then the diversity plunges a little bit, and we get we get less diverse once we get into the early 20th century. But um, but yeah, so Ellen, tell us a little bit about how we that's reflected in burial practices, what we see, and maybe what we don't see. Well, of course. Um, Cemetery decoration can often indicate a person's 
either ethnic background or fraternal organization or whatever, you know, you often see a Masonic symbols or odd fellows, the three linked circles um, and those kinds of things. Um, there are many sections that are devoted to these various fraternal organizations, the odd fellows, the Masons, the Knights of Columbus, the Woodmen of the World and, and those groups. And sometimes those groups even had their own cemeteries, sometimes, uh, Masons and Oddfellows in particular. But, you know, there are these other clusters of various ethnic groups, like um, the Serbians with Cyrillic writing on, on their tombstones in Bear Creek, for example. There were a lot of Serbian miners there. You find uh, Japanese railroad workers buried um, several hundred of them in the Missoula City Cemetery. And then you find a row of Japanese uh, characters on tombstones in the uh, Deer Lodge Cemetery as well. And many, as you mentioned, many communities had separate areas for the Chinese. Um, Helena has China Row, which is outside the tended grounds of Forest Vale Cemetery. But about 200 people are, are buried there. And Catholics and, and Jews had their own cemeteries or their own sections oftentimes. Um, and it's interesting because um, the African-American ones that I have looked at, African-Americans do tend to cluster in cemeteries, but it's not because of discrimination. It's really more because of family association where you find groups, um, which I think is really very interesting because, you know, uh, Montana, like everywhere else, uh, had a history of discrimination, but in cemeteries, it's really not so obvious, at least in my experience. Cool. I mean, you also have, as Crystal and I have talked about before, you have the, the madams and yeah. women who had means, but maybe socially weren't as accepted. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and sometimes they're right there in the middle of the cemetery. with the Yeah, children. Benton Avenue has one madam that has her own little fence around it. And she has on the posts of the, of the fence are pineapples, which mean welcome. No, she's welcoming visitors even now. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. But aren't there some cemeteries, Ellen, um, in Montana where the madams or the prostitutes were kind of on the edge of the cemetery? Have you found well, that? I, I, um, I know that there is one in uh, Missoula. Mary Glime is buried, unlike all the other people in the cemetery. It's not necessarily a section, but... Uh, unlike all the other folks in the cemetery, her tombstone faces the railroad tracks so she could wave at the <laughs> at her customers as they went by. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't actually found I haven't found a section of prostitutes. To me, they have been mostly intermingled in in various various different places. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I know here in Bozeman, our madams are intermingled amongst mm -hmm. everyone else. So yeah, yeah. yeah. it but seems if you had the, the resources, I think, to have the funeral and the headstone, I guess, yeah, yeah. you bought a plot, maybe yeah. that fascinating, you know, yeah. considering how people were probably treated more in more marked differentiation in life, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I find that really interesting. I find it so interesting, too, when you talk about the fraternal organizations, how big this seems to be, especially early on 
in yeah. Montana. So in the, in the, throughout the 1800s, maybe early 1900s, but it seems to be such a way to identify oneself. And I think about yeah. people coming out and maybe not having their whole family come out too. So when it comes to bury them, are they buried in this new place they moved to and maybe have only lived to for a while? Are they shipped back home? And it seems that these fraternal organizations become, I don't know, a way of creating communities or what is your read on that? Because yeah, there's they, so much symbolism in this. Mm-hmm. They do become a family. And, you know, the Masons in particular were uh, such a cornerstone really in the founding of uh, Montana territory. Uh, and, you know, they are tied with the vigilantes and that whole movement um, and whether they were, good or bad. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of people will disagree, but, um, but you do find uh, Masonic sections in most cemeteries, very early cemeteries. Benton Avenue, for example, you know, was founded in 1870 and it was planned to have one whole quarter is Masonic, Mm. um, which, you know, is really kind of amazing for that early. Uh, And there, there are, you know, many, many folks, buried in that uh, Masonic section very early on. And not just men, but family members too. Hmm. So yeah, I think it was a great identifier and it was a great way of bringing people together. Yeah. And it was, it was a great way for when people came to a new community to have instant network, you know, they could come, they were Masons in New York where they lived and they came to Virginia city and and they had a ready made, they did family. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And, and is it, am I right in remembering? I I feel like Crystal, I heard this maybe on one of your tours or maybe one of (laughs) Ellen's, but that, that some aspects of these, the Masons or the woodsmen was sometimes they, they did have then sort of a safety net of funds that were for burial so that you could have a headstone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That was part of, part of why you maybe joined. Was- yeah. Oftentimes they paid for the funeral. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Especially um, Ellen, the woodman of the world. Wasn't that, um, can you talk a little bit about that? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's okay. You just got that question right yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really don't know there much about it. <laughs> I can talk about the uh, the Red Men, <laughs> which is uh, another really bizarre oh, organization. Very bizarre. Yeah, I probably uh, probably don't want to talk about that one. Right, right. <laughs> we'll move on from that one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to get to my question. Then, so okay. Go on from there. Um, so, when I came to Montana, I, I really started hearing a lot about Boot Hills and um, Boot Hill Cemeteries. And I, I wasn't really familiar with this term from other places that I've lived. So probably the best known Boot Hill is the one in Virginia City. And that's where a lot of people encounter it. But so many of these early mining towns and early communities had Boot Hills. So we have them in Nevada City, in Helena. Um, there's probably one in, in Butte and Bozeman. And I remember talking to you um, a couple of years ago and you saying, well, so-and-so is Boot Hill and this and there is Boot Hill. And I remember thinking, okay, there's there's Boot Hills all over the place. I need to start understanding what this means. <laughs> so tell us a bit about, um, first of all, what a Boot Hill is and then how it, how it got its name and then which ones of these have survived and are still around in Montana. So Boot Hill actually became just the sort of nickname for small cemeteries across the West, not just in Montana, but across the West. And, you know, the, 
the imagery is really of someone who died with their boots on uh, in some violent way. And that really, that is really the definition of Boot Hill. Someone it sounds who, like a very Western. Yeah, exactly. And this, yeah. You know, and this was common yeah. across the West. Yeah. And so cemeteries were often just called Boot Hill uh, because people did often die violently in you know, one way or another with their boots on. And that, that, that's what that meant. Um, as far as what is left here in Montana, you know, uh, there is a boot hill in um, Billings from the early community of Colson. And that one is sort of in the middle of uh, in the b- middle of urban encroachment. And it's interesting because the crosses that are on that boot hill were <laughs> laid there much, 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 much later by the Boy Scouts. And they probably don't even indicate real burials. They're just crosses that are there to mark the fact that this is where the original cemetery was. And probably a lot of those burials were unmarked anyway. You know, that was the common thing, just not to not to mark them. Um, Bannock has a boot hill up right. on the very top, the highest point overlooking the town. And um, that one, you know, became became too inaccessible. It's way up on this hill. Just imagine carting a body in a wagon way up there. I mean, I haven't even hiked up there myself. <laughs> it makes me tired to think about it. And yeah. so, you know, they created in the 1880s uh, a new Bannock Cemetery, which looks pretty darn old, you know. Uh, but, but it is a, a more uh, laid out type of cemetery. And then um, you have a boot hill in... Um, Virginia City, which is probably the most famous one in Montana, I guess. And that one really, to me, is very interesting because uh, it was um, the city cemetery started in when Virginia City was founded in 1863. So for a couple of years, it was used as the regular city cemetery. There were a couple of epidemics. People were buried there and other other folks who died of other things were buried there. Um 1865, these five accused road agents were hanged in Virginia City, and they're buried there on top of the hill. And it became very repugnant to families think of their loved ones when lying next to these road agents. And so uh, a lot of people uh, moved their loved ones to the new cemetery just across the ridge, which is Hillside Cemetery today, which is the, the current city cemetery. So you did have people that were moved from the original Boot Hill over to Hillside, but not everybody had family members to move those people buried there, including the Daltons, who were a couple that died of a typhoid, I believe, and um, they're still there. We don't exactly know where their graves are because they were unmarked, but we know that they're buried there. And we know that those five road agents are still buried there, although some people believe that there's nobody buried on Boot Hill. Mm. Well, in 1907, the city, the mayor, James Walker, decided he wanted to mark those road agents' graves for the first time to uh, bring tourists to Virginia City. And so he he and Lou Calloway, who was an attorney, um, determined that there was one person 
who knew the order of the burial because he had been a vigilante and he had helped with the with the, uh, the burials and he knew who was buried in what order and they figured if they could find George Lane who had a congenitally deformed foot if they could find him they then they could identify the order of the other burials and they could mark them so um, Lou Calloway described Boot Hill in 1907 and he said that there were at that time two lines of burials and that the burials were marked with stones, three stones in a triangle. I know of one burial in uh, Nevada City that is marked like that. Yes, yes. Pretty cool. Yes. And so that must have been one way that they did sometimes mark graves. So these graves on Boot Hill were marked with, with the three tri- with the tree, the three stones. And so they began to dig, and they did, in fact, unearth the foot. Mm. Uh, they, they halfway exhumed George Lane, extracted the foot, and reburied him. Mm-hmm. And we know that for a fact. So I know for sure that George Lane, at least, is buried there. Right. And had he ever been removed or had the other ones ever been a disinterred, there would have been public comment about it. You know, and it yes. just, I'm sure that those folks and others are still buried there on Boot Hill. Mm. Oh, man. So yes. these Boot Hills are really just where, when people started settling places, just making these towns, gold rush, whatever, just the quick earliest, people are going to die. People die early or they yeah. come out sick even, they die. Yeah. It's a place that's um, higher grounds because mm-hmm. that's where you're going to be safer to bury someone. So, yep. you know, not attached to a ceremony, I mean, a church or a, or a, um, anything else, no sort of formal cemetery in that sense. They didn't start. Mm-hmm. It sounds like some of them grew into cemeteries, but most of them really ended up being moved in what became formal cemeteries and settlement areas were moved. So some of these are places what, that you've been able to, to trace and, and mm-hmm. find and are, mm-hmm. are hopefully preserved um i suppose because these are important early places where people who came well here- of course the you know the ones that i mentioned the boot hills that we just talked about are preserved but uh the one helen is is under central school you know oh, so gosh. urban encroachment you know killed that one and when they <laughs> built the first central school in 1875 they had to you know remove the people that they found they didn't find everybody Right. And, you know, there are, you know, other stories of <laughs> of remains surfacing, you know, but <laughs> right. um, but 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 that cemetery completely obliterated. You know, we know where it was mm-hmm. uh, because remains still are, you know, sometimes found there. But um, yeah. yeah, but you often know, these unmarked graves, too, in the boot hills is, is yeah. how they started. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> You know, graves were very rarely really marked. I mean, if you think about it, until the railroad came, it was impossible to um, really buy tombstones. And the cost of transporting by animal, something heavy like that, was just prohibitive. So, yes, you do find some. Those very white tombstones are the ones, of the marble ones, are the ones that have been imported from somewhere else. But, you know, there aren't that many of them. And there are, I know that they did an inventory here in Helena in 1883 to uh, see how many uh, graves there were in all the cemeteries. And they determined that only one fourth of all of the graves were marked Mm, and all the other ones were unmarked. 
you know, yeah. so there are people buried everywhere. There are, you know, and there I think are. that's one of the things that we talk about when we do our cemetery tours here in Bozeman is that in the historic section, you see... Um, you see a lot of headstones, but mm-hmm. that only represents just a small portion yeah. of the people yep. that are actually buried there. And I think yeah. that's fascinating and kind of disturbing to people. I think people think that every mm-hmm. um, plot has a headstone where someone mm-hmm. is located, but that is just not the truth. And so that yeah. kind of brings us to my next question. Um <laughs> You know, talking about graves that are are not marked. And there's a great story, but a very tragic story, of a woman whose name was Celestia Alice Earp. And Mm -hmm. um, this was a woman who lived in Bozeman, and so that's why I have a special fondness for her. And uh, But I heard this story first from you, Ellen. I think I read it in one of your books, um, this story about Celestia Alice Earp. Mm -hmm. And you make mention of her in this book, just in the foreword, though. But I was wondering Mm -hmm. if you could tell us the story of Celestia. So Celestia was a widow, and she came to join a sister in Bozeman and um, homesteaded. And she hired a guy by the name of John Douglas to help her around her homestead. And he became infatuated with her. This was in 1881. He became infatuated with her, kept pressing her to marry him, and she kept rejecting him. And finally, he got violent towards her, and uh, she was afraid for her life. And so she made arrangements to flee the territory because it was the only thing she could do. So friends took her to the Red Bluff stage stop where she had to stay overnight, and John Douglas shows up there, and she's terrified. Next morning, when the stage leaves, for whatever reason, she's riding out in the open with the driver. John Douglas comes up behind the stagecoach and shoots her five times, and she never lost consciousness. She had the wherewithal to dispose of her estate and make her will and all of this. Um, Douglas was caught and was tried and convicted and hanged in Virginia City. Um, But um, Celestia's body was sent back to Bozeman, and we are pretty sure that she was buried somewhere in Bozeman. Um, Although she had asked to be sent back to Ohio, um, don't think that that ever happened. So somebody ordered a tombstone for her from the local hardware store, which is what you would normally do. But you have to think it would take a year for something like that to first get made and then get delivered. And uh, by the time the tombstone was delivered, her sister, who probably is the one who ordered it, had already left Montana. So this tombstone apparently sat in the hardware store and (laughs) Celestia had an unmarked grave. So they couldn't really put her tombstone where it belonged. Nobody probably knew where she was buried. And so a few years after that, there was a a major fire. This hardware store burned. The tombstone fell to the basement, was covered up. And when the the Nevit Nevit block was built on that site, um, the tombstone was still in the basement and became sort of just a protrusion in the floor. So the people who... (laughs) owned the building in 1965, were having some plumbing replaced. And they knew about this protrusion, but they didn't know what it was. And it was removed, and it turned out to be Celestia's tombstone. And so then it was on display for a while in the um, early Carolyn McGill Museum, which became the forerunner of the Museum of the Rockies. 
And somewhere along the line, the tombstone was lost. So if anyone knows where that tombstone is, please let yes. us know. <laughs> That's um, quite a story. Oh, yeah. It's yes. such a it's such a quite a story. And I, I whenever I do the cemetery tour, I talk about that story because um Celestia's brother is buried right there in our local cemetery. And and I kind of think maybe Celestia is buried there next oh. to him somewhere. So um, when did he die? So he died much later, much later, of oh, course. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know his exact death date, but, you know, probably the early 1900s. And mm-hmm. so, um, so he's buried there along with his wife. And, and so I feel like he probably would have buried himself next to his sister, but I don't mm-hmm. know. You know, who knows? Uh, who knows? Yeah. But they are in the very old part of the cemetery, which was being used in 1881, which is when mm-hmm. Celestia mm-hmm. died. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, so who knows? But I always tell that story because I that's a, a good way to talk about, you know, the people that are buried in the cemetery that don't have headstones or yeah. don't or have a headstone that's out there somewhere, just not on her grave. <laughs> yeah. So, it, I mean, it's a really good lesson of how difficult it was to obtain those tombstones. And then by the time they came, there was nobody there to, you know, to take right. it. If there had been yeah. a temporary marker, Ellen, out of wood or whatever, or even an old tree, like those can <clears throat> decay, go away. We don't have mm-hmm. that anymore. So and, and maybe no one with a memory of where. Yeah. She, yeah. 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 Goodness so, gracious. But I always ask everybody who's on the tour, if you hear about Celestia's headstone, let us know. One of these days, Crystal. One of these days. You will find it. Yeah, <laughs> all days. of your sleuthing, you guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this has been such a fascinating discussion. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I know you have a busy schedule. Um, and we highly recommend that everyone find a copy of The Life of the Afterlife in the Big Sky State. It's a, it's a great history of Montana and a history of the West through the lens of cemeteries and burying practices and the traditions associated with them. So Ellen, where can people find a copy? So um, Montana Historical Society gift shop has uh, ample copies of the book and you can probably find it in your local stores um, around Montana. Great. You can definitely find it at the Extreme History Project headquarters here in Bozeman on Mendenhall Street. If you're in the local area, we've got copies. So come on down and and grab one. It's a great book. And I also wanted to say, um, if you have a chance to go on an Ellen Baumler walking tour or (laughs) see a presentation, it's well worth the time. Definitely go. Yes. Take the opportunity. Absolutely. Um, You You are are a master storyteller. Exactly. Yes. 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 <laughs> so this has been fun. Thank you all. You yeah. are welcome. Thank you, Ellen. And and thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past, so make sure to like that. Um, thanks for listening today, and I just wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, the Western Heritage Center, located in Billings, Montana. They are a museum with the mission um, to collect, preserve, and tell the stories of the people and places of the Yellowstone River Valley and the Northern Plains region. They do this in so many ways, including through the museum, but they also have an 
a very active outreach program doing presentations throughout the region and the state of Montana. In fact, their executive director has done a podcast with us. Kevin Koistra has done a podcast with us about the national suffragist Hazel Hunkins. So um, go back in, in, in our archives and look for that podcast. It's great. If you're in the Billings area, make sure to stop in and see their exhibits. They always have very relevant and fascinating things on display. For example, they are working on an exhibit now that's going to debut soon called Conquering Diseases of the Past. And I want to mention, just because you're doing that, Crystal, that Ellen, you also brought your book very current by talking about the pandemic and issues Mm -hmm. that are that often prevent us sometimes um, of carrying out the mortuary customs that we have. So I thought that was a, a great way to make your book just really relevant to the present as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about the dirt, dirt on, on the, the past. past. It's hard to do that over Zoom. <laughs> it is. <laughs> okay. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin, especially with this triple Zoom today. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for his amazing music and to John Chadwell for help getting this podcast out into the world. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.